Good evening and uh, welcome to tonight's lecture. Um, my name is uh, Paul Kelly and I'm Professor of Political Theory in the Government Department and the Head of Department. Now the only reason that's interesting is because tonight's speaker, um, some years ago, was a, a graduate of our department, Government and History. So whatever um, is good about tonight's lecture, we'll take some sort of reflective credit for. Okay? But it was a long time ago, just in case it's... Not very good. As a former student of the department, I'm obviously responsible for um, uh, this lecture. And it's a great pleasure for us to, to welcome Tom Filing here as um, our guest and to discuss his new book, The Candy Machine, How Cocaine Took Over the World. Um, in the, in, in the uh, little blurb at the beginning, it says that uh, Tom has been a documentary filmmaker and failed to be a successful hotelier in Colombia. He has more recently been campaign director of justice for Colombia. And tonight he's going to take us through the important issues and um, arguments of his book. So I'd like you to welcome Tom Filing. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, this is the first time I think I've addressed such a big crowd. Uh, funny than enough, the last time I was called upon to address uh, a big crowd of expectant faces was at the LSE when I was about 18 and I was at the Students' Union. I got roped in to talk about why we were all opposed to student grants and I remember uh, sitting there watching the clock just hoping that the time would run out before I had to speak and it did. So I never got to speak uh, in public or at the LSE and for my punishments, here I am, for my sins. Um, uh, it took me about two years to write this book. Um, it came out in August this year, so it's uh, about six months of traveling around Colombia, uh, Jamaica, the States, and Mexico, uh, talking to people, researching the book, and another eight months back here, talking to people in this country, and putting the book together. Um, I'll just run through a little bit of my background and how I came to want to write this book. Uh, I lived in Colombia for a year from 2001 to 2, and during that time I made a documentary called Resistencia Hip Hop in Colombia. And uh, as Paul said, when I came back, I started working for the TUC's Justice for Colombia campaign, which, if you don't know, is uh, a solidarity organization between the British trade unions and the Colombian trade unions. Uh, and that took me back to Colombia a few times. Um, so that was obviously a key thing that got me interested in the idea of writing this book. But I suppose there were other things in the background. Uh, much more obvious than that is that I was born in 1968. Uh, when I was researching the book in the States, I was told that that puts me in the cocaine generation. Um, it was explained to me that there was a heroin generation before me, uh, people born before 68, those people who get into hard drug use tend to get into heroin. Those people born after 68, that was the cutoff point actually, uh, tend to run into terrible problems with cocaine. And I think those people born after about 79 are known as the marijuana generation. 
um, because they've turned their back on heroin and cocaine. I mean, obviously, this doesn't apply to everyone, let alone me, but those people who do get into hard drug use, it's largely determined by when you were born. Um, but that is a short way of saying that uh, I think another formative influence in researching and writing the book and my take on the whole subject is that I have grown up in a culture in which drugs have been freely available, um, in which drug education never really counted for much. Uh, and I think that that has a large bearing on my take on prohibition, is growing up in a culture in which people, you learn from your peers uh, about drug use, uh, not from any scientific, political, uh, or medical authority. Um, I think another factor that's influenced my take on things is that as I got later uh, into my 20s, quite a lot of my friends developed serious problems with hard drugs. So I experienced at first hand uh, people's experience of drugs like heroin and crack cocaine. And <clears throat> I had my own uh, interpretations of what was, well, they did as well, their own interpretations of what was driving their drug use, uh, the impact or lack of an impact of the law, um, and what it took for them to kick those drug habits. Thankfully, I think all of them did eventually get off destructive drug use. Um, before I go on, I'd like to ask a quick question. How, what do you think the chances are of being arrested for possession of cocaine in the UK? I'll make some suggestions to you. Do you think it's 20%, 10% or 1%? Who'd say 20? Who'd say 10? Who'd say 1? Yeah, it's 1%. Um, my lecture is going to be rambling, and I'm going to go all over the place, but throughout it, there is a thread which is questioning the idea of the ability to prohibit, prohibit drugs, the impact of the law uh, on drug use. Uh, and in, in examples like that, I hope to show that uh, there is a de facto legalization, a de facto decriminalization of drug use which uh, a lot of those people who argue against the legalization of drugs omit to consider. One other thing I think that, Im uh, that impacted and influenced my take on, on the drugs business, uh, again, is part of the culture that I grew up in, which was a lot of the music and the television uh, and the cinema that I grew up with takes on, discusses the drugs business. Um, it's interesting, hip-hop music, I don't know if any of you are into hip-hop music. Hip-hop music doesn't talk very much about people taking drugs. It talks a lot, though, about the war on drugs, people buying, selling drugs, going to prison for drugs. And although it doesn't really, hasn't really made its way into the book, it was a key consideration, this idea of untold stories. And I asked myself why those stories were untold why the lessons, I mean, they might seem trivial or peripheral, but why the lessons uh, of the drug trade, the side that we don't often hear about, the, the failings, uh, seem to have come out in popular cultural forms but aren't really taken on board by politicians. One, uh, a more contemporary example of this, I think, is The Wire. I don't know um, if there are any fans of The Wire here. Can I just get a show of hands? How many people have seen The Wire? Not actually that many. How many people haven't seen The Wire? They're all studying. Well, maybe the people who've seen it can explain it to the people who haven't afterwards. 
the Wire is set in Baltimore, and to cut a long story short, it's a dram dramatization of the, um, the, the war on drugs through all of the different institutions in the city of Baltimore, the police, uh, drug dealers, the education system, the media. Uh, and it's, it's made a big splash, as people who have, um, who have watched it will testify. And to my mind, The Wire is, it's, I mean, half of the, the novelty value of The Wire was that it was the first time you had a majority black cast on American TV. But I think the bigger impact, or the bigger significance of The Wire, was to really show the failings in an American context of the law. Um, it throws up a lot of questions about managing drug use. Uh, and I hope that this guides my lecture tonight, um, that this is the question I want people to be considering. It's the question I've considered is, is there a better way of managing drug use? If we assume, and I think we have to, that drug use uh, existed before prohibition, uh, and drug use exists almost on in an, another reality, divorced from drug policy, divorced from the laws that are supposedly designed, designed to prohibit drug use. Um, on the subject of legalization, before I get stuck into the, some of the findings I made, uh, it does seem to me that the legalization question very often distracts from the bigger question, which I wanted to address with this book, which is uh, the harm done in the name of, well, the, the harm done by drug use and the harm done by prohibition. A lot of people seem to fast forward straight to this question of uh, should we legalize it, shouldn't we legalize it? And I think that can be a bit of a distraction. I think it's important first to look at how drug policy, the war on drugs, works and see what lessons we can learn from that. Firstly, uh, in how to police the drug trade, if the drug trade can be policed, and how to manage drug use. Um, and that's why the, the legalization debate is it's interesting. There isn't really a, 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 a constituency for, the, for, the, um, for legalization. You don't find a, a body of people who are committed to legalization. At the same time, you find a lot of drug policy experts are very quick to dismiss the idea of legalization. And it's quite interesting that most of the British newspapers, which broadly speaking are, um, I suppose, players in, in the drug war, most of, most of the British newspapers have at one time or other run editorials arguing that legalization is a valid policy, it is the only way out of the problems of, of the cocaine wars and so on. Um, Where am I going with this? Um, I think another thing that I found in researching the book was that the contribution of academics and specialists have basically been maligned and ignored. When you look at the war on drugs uh, on, in this country, in the United States, uh, how they police um, smugglers, the, the crackdown on cocaine production, coca production in Colombia. The people responsible essentially are policemen, policewomen, uh, soldiers, politicians, uh, and the media. And it's interesting that those people who do make specialist studies of any aspects of the drug issue, be it uh, addiction, um, 
be it youth culture, in, be it terrorism. Uh, in the Colombian case, there's a, a whole specialist field known as violentology, the study of violence, the origins of violence, political and otherwise. And yet the findings of the people who have commissioned these, the findings of the, the people who have done these studies are routinely ignored by those soldiers, police officers, bureaucrats who manage the war on drugs. Um, the most recent example I can think of was uh, the, the British Medical Association did a report recently which suggested that marijuana be uh, classified as a, a C-class drug and the government overruled this. But in fact, when you look into the details, um, and I, I'll get on to this, there are lots of studies uh, in a social science context which actually challenge most of the assumptions that we have about uh, the impact of the law, the effectiveness of the law, the dangers of cocaine, the nature of addiction. Uh, so I think, although it's going to be hard for me to, to get onto all these subjects tonight, I think that there is an undercurrent which challenges a lot of the assumptions on which the war on, drug, or the war on drugs uh, rests. Um, in particular, I'd point to the drug ethnographers. These are the people who go out, study people who take drugs, usually in hard uh, drug situations. There were a lot in the States, and their findings were um, a real eye-opener for me, and it, I hope it comes out in the book. Uh, some of you might know Stephen Levitt, who uh, wrote Freakonomics. He's probably the best known of them. He's actually gone into drug dealing, drug using scenarios, and see, tried to look at how much our common wisdom about drugs, drug uh, distribution, actually tallies with reality. And I think he, the work of people like him have, have shown some of the, the difficulties um, in policing the drugs trade. Um, anyway, so all of that is so much as to say I'm not a drug specialist and I'm not an academic uh, and I'm certainly not a police officer. My background is in documentary production and I approach this more from a journalist point of view. Uh, in particular, I wanted to talk to the people directly involved in the front line uh, of fighting the war on drugs and I wanted to talk to people directly involved in cocaine production and distribution and consumption, be they uh, problematic drug users or recreational drug users. Um, some of the preconceptions which perhaps you share um, before I got, before I really started looking at the issues uh, and talking to people, I don't know what your, you know, what the, the, the shared wisdom is here, but certainly before I started researching it, you know, if I were in the pub and the subject of drugs and drug legalization came up, I think most people would agree that the drug policy and the war on drugs was an obvious mess. Um, there were loads of terrible mistakes and errors being made. Uh, there were people who needed medical help or psychiatric help who were being put through the criminal justice system. Um, there were also obvious cases of politicians grandstanding about the need to stamp out drug use. Uh, while their, their colleagues or their children were at home uh, taking cocaine and other drugs. Um, an example of this was uh, a few months ago, Joe Biden, the Vice President uh, of the United States, his daughter was caught on camera taking cocaine. Uh, this, I thought, was particularly ironic because Joe Biden is the man credited with devising the word, the words, uh, drugs are. Um, and what was more ironic still, I thought, was that this had all been played out in the film Traffic, 
I don't know if you've seen the film Traffic, but Traffic is the story of a drug czar uh, who grandstands rather like Joe Biden did about the need to stamp out drug use. Um, and then his daughter goes and develops a heroin habit uh, and then he realises that this habit is really driven by his neglect of his children while he's pursuing his career uh, and the, the, the payoff at the end of the film is really um, drug use is fed by parental neglect, by family breakdown uh, once you have first-hand experience of that it all becomes a much less black and white of an issue um, so that was uh, life imitating art um, but again, if I were with my friends in the pub talking about what's the solution to this, um, is legalisation the only solution? Uh, I think we, the next thing that we would say is you can never legalise drugs because then everyone would take them. Um, and that would probably be the, next, the end of the conversation. We'd have another drink. Um, and that is where, in a way, the, the discussion, the conversation ends. There is a widespread understanding uh, as the head of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime has said, that legalisation would be a historic mistake. Uh, it is a great vacuum, it's a policy vacuum, a great unknown, uh, which again is interesting because th this suggests that we cannot follow the road of legalisation, not because of what we've learned from people who take drugs now. Um, it's impossible not because of how drug users might behave, uh, it's impossible because of those people who at the moment don't take drugs. If it were legalised, they might. Uh, this, to me, opened up, I mean, it was uncharted water. No one had really looked into this. How much uh, the end of prohibition, uh, a legal regulated supply of these dangerous drugs, how would people who currently don't take any drugs, uh, well, except legal ones, would they would drug use among those people, would it rise? The only study that I found was done in uh, Arlington, Virginia. I don't exactly remember the date. They, they asked just that question. They asked, if cocaine were legal, would you, would you take it? I think 1% of people said that they would. I mean, it's very hard to ask those questions. Would you answer honestly? If someone came to your door and, and asked you such a question, I'm sure a lot of people were just being coy. Um, but it is... That is the, the, the crucial thing that, that stops the conversation in its tracks. The idea that uh, the law is what is stopping us from indulging in uh, a secret desire we all harbour uh, to take loads and loads of hard drugs. Uh, and if the law were taken away, we would all have our noses in the bag. In fact, of course, there is a more important, um, uh, how can I say, there, there is a, a more important reason why legalization isn't discussed, and that is the symbolic, I emphasize symbolic value of prohibition. Uh, it's not simply that we don't know what might happen if we legalize drugs. It's also that uh, the way that we talk about drug use, um, it has become, uh, well, it's part of the culture wars whereby uh, politicians, if they are to entertain the idea of legalizing drugs, they, they run the risk of being accused of being soft on crime, soft on drugs. Uh, and this is the symbolic value of prohibition, uh, of striking a stance, of taking a posture, a line in the sand, all this language that we've all grown up with uh, is, is very important, although it doesn't seem to... 
um, have a, a, a direct relationship to the, the reality on the ground. And that's because, at heart, prohibition, the war on drugs, was launched before um, effective drug policies were launched, before the need for effective drug policies were launched. The war on drugs goes back to Richard Nixon. Prohibition uh, goes back to about 1914, when, well, I mean, we're a of light years away from that time. Uh, the world of drug use at that time uh, was quite different. And when drugs like cocaine were banned, the people who were on the receiving end of that, the people who were taking drugs like cocaine, were quite different um, to the people who take it today. Um, I'll come on to a bit more of that a bit later on. Um, prohibition of drugs basically um, was put on the statute books at the same time as the prohibition of alcohol. Uh, and it, prohibition is, and all its metaphors of crusades and uh, drug-free worlds, uh, does go back to an Anglo-Saxon idea, I'd argue, of self-restraint, of a fear of losing face in front of your peers. Um, and this is what drove the prohibition of, of alcohol. But of course, within that formal prohibition, there was always room, or there were always plenty of exceptions, for people who would, in private, indulge um, that desire for abandon that I think is at the heart of, of a lot of drug use. So what we've grown up with is a system of formal prohibition and yet at the same time, because it cannot be effectively prohibited in fact, there is room for huge numbers of people to occasionally indulge um, those desires that they 95% of the time keep in check. <clears throat> um, the... <clears throat> The legalisation question is, is, is not something that's really made it um, into mainstream discourse. It is, as I say, it hasn't really made it any further than the editorials of newspapers. Um, but when I was started to research the book, I was told by, I remember several, several people in different countries that, it, that this was something that couldn't be said but people knew to be true. And particularly in the Colombian case, uh, because there's an understanding, I think, among the political class in Colombia that prohibition is a given. It's essentially controlled by the United States. It's an American policy that the countries like Colombia have to go along with. Um, they, th there isn't room to say what a lot of people, I think, considered obvious, which was that the only, the only way out of this, um, and a lot of politicians told me this, was, uh, was to legalize it. Um, those who wouldn't go that far would at least say that, that, that um, American politicians need to tackle demand at home. Um, and I'll come on to this in a little bit as well, because there has been a lot of policy has been around tackling the supply of drugs. Uh, and those who are slightly more foresighted have belatedly come to the realization that the problem is the demand for those drugs, uh, which again opens up another a whole can of worms all in, of, all in and of itself. Um, so I had a sense as I researched it that I was speaking for a lot of people who would like to have come to that conclusion, but because of their political positions, this was uh, a taboo subject. Legalization was essentially uh, not a, an avenue worth pursuing because at the end of that avenue was 
uh, well, essentially it was the Pentagon um, and the State Department and the, uh, and the White House Office on Drugs. Um, and interestingly, when I did speak to people who were accustomed to being critical of American policy in this country, um, people at different universities, and I suggested, well, perhaps all the drug violence in countries like Colombia might be solved by legalizing drugs. There were people who had dedicated 20 years of their academic careers to studying the violence in Colombia who said they'd never even considered it. Um, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, they, they were well accustomed to criticizing the fumigation of the coca fields. Uh, they were well accustomed to criticizing the decertification process whereby countries that don't follow the international or American line on the war on drugs uh, have access to, to loans and IMF grants blocked in, to keep them in line with American policy. They, they were accustomed to criticizing all of that, but in fact the legalization as a solution to that um, never really came up, and I, I find that very surprising. Uh, they'd say things, you know, that there were certainly other alternatives they came up with. For example, in the Colombian context, they talk about alternative development. But again, whenever I spoke to anyone in the countryside in Colombia, local politicians and so on, they said that very little money had been spent on alternative development. And in fact, you know, there, there were reports I found written by the State Department which admitted that the amount of alternative development you'd need to make coca production uh, unprofitable or to move people into legal agricultural um, production, it, it, it was, it, the sums involved were astronomical. It, there was no way that you could say that coca would be uh, less profitable than growing something like coffee or bananas. Um, on the subject of Colombia and why legalization uh, hasn't been hasn't been taken on by those people who are accustomed to being critical of American policy abroad. Um, it's interesting, it's just not part of the, the, the discourse of, of the left. Um, and I think this fits into a broader pattern where a lot of the issues that really affect countries like Colombia, like uh, drugs and crime, um, have not really been treated, uh, I mean perhaps I'm, I've been out of the LSE uh, too long, but it doesn't seem the social sciences have got to grips with this. There will be a lot of people who will say that it's poverty that drives Colombia uh, to produce as much coca as it does. But in fact, the levels of poverty you see in Colombia um, are, relatively speaking, comparable to its neighbours. I think, and I've, I've asserted in this book, that Colombia occupies a, a special status. Um, I don't want to wind up the Colombian the audience too much, but it was told to me by um, a professor in Bogota that when, coca, when cocaine was legal, uh, the coca plant was grown in about 33 countries around the world. As soon as it became illegal and you know, production went up, it was concentrated principally in Colombia and Bolivia and Peru as well. But it's interesting why they don't grow coca in Java or Taiwan or Sri Lanka, where it was grown when it was a legal crop. In other words, what is it in Colombia that attracts illegal activities? Because it certainly does. Uh, Colombia is the biggest producer of cocaine in the world. It's also the only country in the world that also exports marijuana and heroin. Colombia exports more prostitutes, arms more children, and produces more counterfeit dollars 
than any other country in Latin America. And on the last instance, the counterfeit dollars, no other country in the world produces as many counterfeit dollars as Colombia. So in the book, I've looked at the sources of illegality in Colombia rather than looking at poverty per se. Um, and again, I think, you know, to cut a, a long story short, the lesson of Colombia is, um, is that I, I don't want to be too dogmatic in asserting that I think that legalization is the only way out. My point is that uh, from, a, from a pragmatic point of view, uh, in trying to assert this particular law uh, in the world in which we live, a country like Colombia, which is building constitutional law as we speak, the rule of law, um, in, uh, applying its constitution to, to its political scene, uh, that is one exa example of many in which um, that they're, they're on a hiding onto nothing. Um, okay, let me get on to the nitty-gritty. I'm going to, I mean, I don't have much time, do I? Oh, my goodness. No, I don't have much time at all. I thought this might happen. I just wanted to, um, I want, if I have time, to, to focus on three scenarios. Uh, the rise of a hard drug economy in the United States, uh, the, campaign, the, the fight against drug smuggling, uh, coca growers, and cocaine consumers. Um, Briefly, though, a few things that I picked up, um, if you're interested in knowing more, you can read the book. A few things I picked up from reading about the pro-prohibition days, um, because it raised lots of interesting questions which, which I think uh, would be, we'd all do well to dwell on. Drugs always appear a modern problem. Um, drugs are taken to be an indictment. Uh, if, you're, if you're a left-winger, drugs are an indictment of our the neglect and poverty we inflict on poor communities. If you're a right-winger, they're an indictment of our permissiveness. But in fact, drugs go back much further than this, before times when there was this strict bipolar split of how we interpret drug use. Um, cocaine was invented in 1859. But another question that I asked myself, as I read through all the, the history and so on. It's interesting that coca never joined those other products that um, came back from the New World with the first wave of European explorers. Uh, there were a whole load of agricultural products that we take for granted today, which first came here uh, with, the, with those first explorers. Crops like tomatoes and potatoes, and also various psychoactive substances um, I mean, I'm talking about mild psychoactive substances like sugar and chocolate. Also, tobacco. It's interesting that Europeans went to Latin, to Latin America then and came back and happily started smoking tobacco, which, I mean, the, the idea of smoking a plant, they took to that. There were plenty of people they would have seen there who would have been chewing coca leaves, um, which to me seems much less strange, and we've learned in retrospect it's far less damaging. So I wondered to myself, well, why, didn't, why aren't we all chewing coca? Why didn't coca come back? Why did tobacco come back? Why, why were the Europeans happy to have little fires in their mouths uh, and then die in huge numbers from doing so? But coca, they, they well, the answer to that, what I found, was that the first Europeans thought that chewing coca reminded them of their cows. 
They thought it, was a, a, it wasn't really a habit fit for a grown man. Um, Vespucci, Amerigo Vespucci, who gave his name to the American continent, in his diary he said that he found it uh, bovine, uh, the coca-chewing habit. Um, I'd also argue that drugs, our understanding of cocaine and our understanding of the war on drugs are essentially American. I don't think that that's, um, that's too uh, of a, a hard point to prove. Um, but looking into the history books, you find that cocaine, before it was banned, was, was widely available and used in all different countries, all different scenarios. For example, there was a cocaine scene in St. Petersburg just before the Russian Revolution, which the Bolsheviks were quite quick to crack down on. Um, and that leads me into another interesting point uh, that I think comes out in the book, is that the only countries that have effectively banned drug use once the demand for that those drugs were strong, have been very authoritarian regimes. I'm thinking of China, the Soviet Union, uh, the former Soviet Union, and today Cuba. Um, in the Caribbean, I think just about the only country that hasn't been significantly hit by uh, drug trafficking and the corruption that it brings to, to politics and government in Caribbean states is, is Cuba. Uh, and the irony is that there have been reports from uh, American intelligence agencies worrying about what might happen when, if and when Fidel Castro dies and Cuba goes free market, um, we're going to see more corruption uh, of, the, of the free market, supposedly democratic government of a future Cuba by today's drugs traffickers. I think this too, I mean the idea that the only way that you can uh, police the drugs trade is through authoritarian measures something else that I think hasn't really been taken on board. Another point I'd like to make, drug users change. Drug users are not always the people they are today. I'll read a quick bit. This is a quote from the Daily Mail, July 1901, by one of their columnists, Guinevere. Uh, she's talking about cocaine. She says, the habit grows rapidly. A mild 10% solution obtained at a chemist to cure a toothache has given many people a first taste of the joys and horrors of cocaine. The first effect of a dose is extreme exhilaration and mental brilliancy. The imagination becomes aflame. The after effects, reaction, utter loss of moral responsibility, a blotched complexion, and the lunatic asylum or death. Yet any chemist will tell you that it has been increasingly in demand by women of late years. It's interesting that at that time the, the, the cocaine users and the problem cocaine users were all women, middle class London women, very far removed from who we consider to be your, your typical drug user or your typical problem drug user today. Um, I've completely run out of time, all the things I wanted to say. I'll make one more point because um, we have 20 more minutes. Okay, I'll keep going. <laughs> Another thing I found, I mean, I, I said I don't want to get too drawn by the whole pro-prohibition days, but there is a few things to think about. Something else I found is when you look at the roots of prohibition, when the drug cocaine was originally banned, the people who sparked the first scares around cocaine use, uh, which got the, the newspapers excited and then got the politicians excited and then the politicians were appealing to their electors saying, don't worry, we, we're going to crack down on this, we're not going to let... Pardon the pun. We're going to stamp down on this. Um, 
they they nearly all um, the, the the original problem drug users were nearly all redundant people in one way or another. The first cocaine scares took place in the southern United States. Uh, it was redundant sharecroppers. Um, that was one of the high points of lynchings of black Americans. Uh, and that fits into another pattern that you find, which is the, the, the drug problem users who justified prohibition uh, very often were from ethnic minorities. Um, the first opium scares in the States involved Chinese Americans uh, who too find, found themselves redundant in the United States after the completion of the Pacific Railroad. And there were demands from white uh, railroad workers uh, that the, the, they, they, they wanted um, an end to the competition that Chinese labor was supplying. Uh, and coincidentally, this is when you first find people talking about the problem of opium use in the States. The first marijuana scares um, in the 1920s and 30s were when a lot of Americans, as a result of the Depression, were moving in from the Midwestern states, they were moving into California, and there was a, a big move to grant homes and land to uh, white Americans at a time when most of California was um, occupied by Mexican Americans. Uh, and the story of how marijuana uh, encourages Mexicans to go berserk and start raping white women, these stories all spread coincidentally at a time when, again, uh, there was a pressure for, or essentially there was, in this case, the, the Mexicans were redundant of their citizenship uh, rather than their, their labor. So I think there's a pattern, and I suppose this isn't news to anyone, but there is a pattern where those people who most provoke the media and the politicians' fear of drug use tend to be from minorities. They tend to be from transient groups or groups regarded as unstable, groups from which we need to fear rebellion. Uh, so I'm, another thing, I'd, just before we I move on from the pre-prohibition days, is to bear this in mind, this... Um, the pattern in which drug use, drug users, uh, the dangers of cocaine use, uh, and who is considered a dangerous cocaine user is a very malleable concept. So I think it would do well to bear in mind who we consider uh, the problematic drug users today. Um, so when you look at, uh, are, are, is cocaine banned because it is dangerous? Um, I think some of these lessons from, from history suggest that they were not banned because they were dangerous per se. Um, um, anyway, so uh, I've mentioned earlier on that I think the war on drugs was launched before drug policy was launched. So what I mean by that is that the war on drugs uh, sets up the idea that uh, we can create a drug-free world. Uh, it is possible to get rid of all drugs. Um, and that, I think, is, is addressed, obviously, at those people who don't or haven't taken drugs, which is the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people in most countries haven't taken any illegal drugs. Uh, and those who have have usually only smoked marijuana. Uh, the problem, though, is that there are a lot of people who do and have taken drugs. And for them, the, uh, who have failed the, the drug war ideal, there are drug policies. 
Um, but those drug policies don't tally with the original ideal of the drug-free world. Um, to the extent that there is an overarching rationale behind drug policy, it is that um, by banning drugs, you reduce the availability of those drugs, you drive up prices, and that puts those drugs out of the reach of the potential users. Um, my findings, my research in doing the book has shown that on that basis, uh, prohibition certainly doesn't work. It doesn't reduce availability. It doesn't drive up prices. It doesn't put them out of the reach of potential users. Um, on the original basis of prohibition, uh, that it is uh, a struggle for a drug-free world, uh, I'd say that most people make the decision to take or not to take drugs for reasons uh, other than, than this, than, than what, what passes for drug education or, or uh, what politicians tell us. In fact, you find that most people follow, take or don't take drugs because of their peer groups, what they learn at school, um, and drug education has very little bearing on it. Okay, let me just move on to a couple of little case studies. Uh, I've got 10 minutes. Um, I'm just wondering how much, maybe I need to, we've got what, 10 minutes? Okay. I'm going to jump ahead to perhaps, um, I was going to talk about the rise of a hard drug economy in the United States, how cocaine moved from being the preserve of Hollywood and became embedded in the American inner cities, the response of, of America's politicians to that, uh, and the kind of circular thing which um, you find, I suppose that's the, what The Wire, the series, the TV series The Wire is, is addressing this circularity uh, where you're unable to take the venom out of the drug economy and instead those people who, well there's a circular process of people uh, entering the drug economy as sales, street sellers, going to prison, coming out unqualified uh, and going straight back into the drug economy. There seems no way of breaking the cycle of drug use or drug sales, but I'm not going to talk about that. Um, I'm going to fast forward to this question of how dangerous cocaine is. Um, one of the writers who, whose work I really liked uh, is someone called Peter Cohen. Um, and on this question of the danger of drugs, he, 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 he set a scenario. Um, he said, if you can imagine uh, uh, a, let's imagine a, a social policy gathering where a lot of people are discussing how to tackle poverty and drug abuse. And uh, they, they have various speakers, and afterwards they all gather for a drink. They all crack open the wine, sip some white wine, um, and talk about what they're going to be doing tomorrow. Meanwhile, outside, there are a group of people, homeless, sleeping on the park bench, who are consuming the same substance as the people inside, namely alcohol. Um, now, when he set this scene, obviously the point he's making is that it's, it's the context uh, in which you consume a potentially harmful substance that is as important as the substance itself. Uh, and I would argue that the same thinking needs to be applied to drugs like cocaine. Um, cocaine is taken in all different contexts, obviously. Uh, and another factor that, um, that determines the, the danger of cocaine uh, is also the form in which it's available. Cocaine uh, obviously originates as a leaf. 
uh, it's turned into cocaine hydrochloride, um, and then it can also be turned into crack cocaine. One of the things that determines the availability of each of these forms uh, is, unfortunately, prohibition. Uh, prohibition ensures that the, the, the forms of the coca plant that make it to these shores are those that can be most easily smuggled uh, and those that, that yield the highest profits. So although all those coca products are illegal, leaf, powder cocaine and crack cocaine, you find in this country uh, it's impossible to buy on the black market leaf cocaine uh, sorry, leaf, coca leaf, uh, and it is very much in certain communities um, crack cocaine is easier to buy than, than legal alcohol. And interestingly, uh, although this doesn't apply to cocaine, there were plenty of people in the States who told me of studies which showed that marijuana was, which of course is illegal, was easier for young people to buy than legal alcohol. Um, Anyway, so how dangerous is cocaine? Um, obviously, taking cocaine does put stress on the heart. It's put stress on the breathing system and on the nervous system. Uh, so there is a potential danger to for anyone who takes this stuff. But to put it in some context, uh, the UK has about 250,000 problematic drug users. Uh, and in, 19, in 2004, there were 147 cocaine-related deaths. I don't have the statistics to hand, but obviously that, that is far less than, than uh, the number of people who die from tobacco or alcohol. I read a shocking statistic the other day, I think it was from 1999, and they were talking about the number of Europeans under the age of 30 who died uh, of alcohol-related accidents or disease. And I think the, f the figure I read was 30,000 under 30-year-olds. 30 I found that absolutely staggering. When you see, well, the number of people who are dying from cocaine use in this country, at least, 147 in 2004. So it can't be the, the danger of cocaine that makes it illegal when you consider just how dangerous, in this case, alcohol is. Um, and this is, this is a subject that's been raised and debated. And there is um, one of the, the, someone who's written books about the war on drugs and is a very keen prohibitionist, an American sociologist, I think he is. His name's James Q. Wilson. And he said that the, uh, the harm done by, by cocaine, when he, his objection to cocaine was not the physical harm done, because there are legal drugs that are far more harmful. He talked about spiritual harm, um, how, how debilitating and awful it was to see someone who had no control over their cocaine intake, who took it despite knowing um, that they shouldn't be taking it, despite knowing the harm that they were doing to themselves and the people around them. And he said, for that reason, uh, he said, you don't see that with alcohol or tobacco. And for that reason, cocaine and drugs like cocaine and heroin uh, should be banned, whereas substances like tobacco and alcohol shouldn't. So this led me to look at the theory of addiction. Um, again, addiction's a modern theory. Addiction, although these drugs have been around for centuries, the theory of addiction to drugs like cocaine is very recent, it's very modern. Uh, certainly in the pre-prohibition days, uh, there was no talk of addiction. Addiction wasn't really understood um, as it is today. And I'd argue that today, addiction has become such a flimsy concept, um, 
in which people can be addicted or perceived to be addicted to all kinds of pernicious substances and activities, uh, it's almost lost its meaning. What, um, from a medical point of view, um, when you compare cocaine to other illegal drugs, uh, the, the aspect of cocaine that makes it addictive uh, is it, you, when you take cocaine, you have a very high risk of dependency, which means people who continue to take a substance um, long after they've decided that they want to stop taking it. They continue to take it. In this way, cocaine is quite different from, for example, heroin or alcohol, which if you've, you've been taking it for a while, when you stop taking it, you feel physically unwell. Uh, the alcoholic gets tremors, the, the, the heroin addict gets, uh, goes cold turkey. Very unpleasant things that encourage you to keep taking it, to avoid that pain. When you stop taking cocaine or crack cocaine, there is no physical pain that accompanies it. Um, and it's interesting that, uh, as a result, until recently, most doctors had very little sympathy uh, for people who had supposed cocaine addiction. Uh, they said that it was basically a, run, a result of being feeble-minded. The attitude was get a grip. Um, but the surveys, that, the studies that I, I looked at, looking into how many people do run into problems with cocaine, whatever the, however the serious that problem was, um, which again, uh, this doesn't seem to have made it very much into general public knowledge, was that about 6% of cocaine users, uh, this was a study done in Amsterdam in 93, 1993, about 6% of cocaine users ran into problems controlling their intake. Um, the, the, the people who wrote, who did the survey, did acknowledge that cocaine use tends to rise, but most people you know, remain in control of their use as it then tails off. Most people who take cocaine, it lasts about three years. You have a three-year career, uh, cocaine-taking career. Um, so the number of people who lose control of their ability to, to, you know, to say, right, I want to stop, I'm not going to take anymore, um, is, is, about, is about 6%. Uh, and most of them, I think from this study, only one of them was absolutely uh, had to find outside help. I mean, there were plenty of them acknowledged they had a problem, but through the support of their friends and so on, they were able to, to, get, a, to, to, to get a grip. Um, the number of people who really needed outside help was, uh, as I said, in the, in the case of that study, there was only one. Uh, I spoke to people in the States who said that essentially the number of people who have problem, problematic relationships with cocaine is the same as the number of people who have problem, problematic relationships with alcohol. Uh, it was about 10%, which was what he told me. Um, this, in this case, this was a drug policeman who started working in drug treatment. Um, okay, I'm going to wind up because um, I've been rambling, and I'm sure uh, you all have plenty of questions and things you'd like, to, points you'd like to make. So I'll jump to my conclusion uh, and what I've called some surprising findings, um, because if there is one thing that I hope that I've tried to convey tonight is the fact that a lot of the assumptions behind the war on drugs and assumptions behind people's support or for, for a prohibition regime, um, in fact, are on quite flimsy ground. Firstly, I think that the dangers of a drug are not constant, but dependent on context and setting. 
Um, another thing I found was that the drug economy is much smaller than people imagine. Uh, perhaps that tallies with how people's fear of drugs or the, the, the danger that they think drugs carry with them. But you regularly find people talking about the size of the world drug economy. Uh, and in fact, I found that it in, in fact it's much smaller than people imagine. Um, apparently, tax evasion in the United States is worth $131 billion a year. Uh, America's drug economy is worth about $25 billion. Um, and I, th I would hazard a rough guess that the world drug trade is worth probably twice that. So you're looking at about $50 billion a year, which in relative terms is not half as big as, as, uh, as most newspapers and politicians would imagine. But again, this points to perhaps a, a bigger problem in looking at the issue of uh, how to manage drug use is that there's very few people who have an interest in, uh, in actually scrutinizing the figures that do come out. If a politician says that the world drug economy is worth 500 billion, in whose interest is it uh, to start questioning that? Um, there actually isn't anyone who, who has any reason to challenge the idea that the uh, drug economy is enormous and spiraling out of control. You'll find that uh, most people treating uh, drug problems on the street and people um, spraying the coca fields would probably agree with that without thinking too much about it. Um, finally, um, I'd say that uh, when, when people wonder uh, quite how we got into this mess, there seems to be, for example, a lot of economists I've read have said that there is some kind of iron law which says that if you have demand for, uh, for a substance, once it gets to a certain point, there will be supply for it, um, and it's impossible to stop that demand or that supply. They will, they will meet each other, and the law is, uh, is unable to break that relationship between supply and demand. I think on the one hand, there are instances, in fact, in which demand uh, can, can be treated. I don't think there's any, an inevitable link between demand and supply, and that looking through all the different factors in all the different countries, I'd, I mean, I don't think I've communicated this very well in this, in this past hour, but it is, in fact, a, a multifaceted uh, group of problems, um, which all of which look feasible on paper. But when taken collectively, uh, they, there is so little linking up between all the different fronts on which the war on drugs is for, so little communication between all the actors involved, uh, when taken together, uh, it becomes quite a dysfunctional, a dysfunctional system, which is exploited, I think, by politicians uh, and the media for their own reasons. Anyway, I feel that um, I haven't really given, done justice to, to the issues raised, but I hope um, this hasn't been too rambling and incoherent. And if you do have any questions, I'll be happy to try and answer them. Okay, we have half an hour for questions. If you have, would you please raise your arm and then a, a microphone will be brought to you. So if we can start with the gentleman right over there um, in the corner first. 
speak clearly yeah. and um, concisely. I was wondering about um, decriminalization um, instead of legalization and the recent moves um, in Argentina and Mexico mm. and Portugal, I think. Do you think decriminalization helps? It seems to me like it doesn't stop a lot of the problems. And what do you think um, will be the result of these moves in Argentina and Mexico? Yeah, uh, the Portuguese case, what I know of the Portuguese case, uh, where they basically said, we're not going to apply criminal sanctions to anyone caught for any kind of drug use. On the other hand, we, you will be referred to some kind of treatment centre. Now, this, to my mind, is that the result of that is that a lot of drug users, including marijuana smokers, are now going into treatment. Uh, so it's shifted the problem somewhere else. But I think, broadly speaking, there has been some increase in recreational drug use and of cocaine use, although, again, there's some argument about whether or not that's down to the fact that more and more cocaine has been coming into Portugal anyway, uh, just as it's the, the logical place to bring cocaine in from being the closest European country to Colombia. Um, and how much it's down, down to the decriminalization. Uh, so I think recreational use has gone up in Portugal, but problematic drug use has gone down. The reason being that a lot of problematic users who, because of penalization, criminalization, were living in marginalized conditions. Most of them were jobless. Uh, a lot of them were physically unwell. Uh, decriminalization has improved the relationship between hard drug users and the service providers. And from that, a lot of them have been able to get into legal work. Burglary's gone down, their health has improved. So I think from what, I can, what, I've, from what I've read, most people have decided that the, ups, the, the result of decriminalization was uh, hard drug use going down, recreational drug use going up marginally. Uh, the problem, though, of course, with decriminalization is that those people supplying the drugs, uh, for example, of cocaine, you still leave all of the criminal business of production and distribution in the hands of, of gangsters. So, in fact, most of the damage done from prohibition isn't really tackled by decriminalizing consumption. At the front. Um, to play devil's advocate, uh, do you not think that the reason that, say, beer and cigarettes, which are largely legal around the world, uh, are such a big industry is because they are legal and, say, for instance, drugs like heroin and cocaine and um, mm. those bad drugs, um, which you, you set yourself say are quite a small industry, do you not think that's because they've been prohibited? I mean, if prohibition had never happened, do you not believe that cocaine and heroin would be a larger industry than what they are now? Mm. Well, this is one, that's the $64 million question. Um, in, in the book, what I've tried to argue is that people's choice to take drugs or not to take drugs, whether recreational or problematic, basically takes place without the intervention of the law. To my mind, people's choice to take drugs is not necessarily, or is marginally affected uh, by that drug's legal status. I think that alcohol and tobacco were always going to be much more popular drugs than drugs like cocaine. Um, and I think to some extent it's borne out by reality where, for example, in Amsterdam where they've, they, they've decided not to criminalize people for, for possession of cocaine. That's had a negligible impact on the number of people who want to take it. Um, 
So it is a theme, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big question, but the, the point I'm making is that I think most people's choice to take drugs or otherwise is, is not determined by its legal status. This, this is one of the problems of criminalizing drug use, is that it, you don't get rid of drug use by doing it. The existing drug users continue, but in furtive, illegal, more dangerous settings, um, where they're more inclined to share needles, spread illnesses. Um, I was talking to someone who was talking about the, the postman in Milan went on strike because the junkies kept putting their used needles in the post boxes. This was in the early 80s. Uh, now, obviously, if you take it out of that street setting, so injecting drug use takes place either, well, in injecting rooms where people have access to clean needles, then certainly you're, you're doing away with th th those kind of risks. On the subject of Amsterdam, um, I think Amsterdam's a bit of an unfortunate example because uh, obviously, they have a liberal drugs policy, which has encouraged a lot of drug tourism, which is uh, anyone studying the, uh, the effects of a liberal drug policy, this does skew everything. If you have loads of Europeans all moving into Amsterdam, it's a bit hard to measure how much um, drug use has been affected by liberalizing laws if, as a result, loads of people go to Amsterdam specifically to take drugs. Thank you. I've got a question. Sorry, I can't. We, have, we can't have follow-ups. We've got a long queue. So, how do you differentiate between a recreational user and a problematic user? Um, well, I mean, I'm sure there is a scientific definition, but. To my mind, I suppose a problematic user is someone whose drug use is hurting themselves or people around them. Perhaps someone who uh, is no longer in, can no longer control their use and it's affecting their day-to-day -day function. They're unable to hold down a job. They're un it's affecting their relationships with people around them. It's affecting their physical health. 
Um, I'm sort of more interested in the whole like global economy and the cocaine market and I don't know you said about supply and demand and I just think it's one of these markets that you're always going to have demand and you're always going to have supply and looking at South America countries like Colombia and Peru and connection to America there's always going to be interest coming in there's always going to be stuff coming in because there's always going to be demand and it's very political drug in the way I always saw it was that one of the reasons for de not decriminalizing it would sort of be, because that would make it a legal market, wouldn't it? And that would make all the black money coming in, well, that would make it controlled. So at the moment we've got black money coming in that is whitened out because it is a governmental thing. And once you make it legal, it's gonna be, it's gonna be controlled, basically. Mm. And that's not of the interest of any governments to make it of a controlled market. So it's sort of a cycle, isn't it? Mm. Mm. No, I mean, there, there were, in researching the, the book, there was a, an idea that you come across that the government, there is a conspiracy among government because they benefit somehow from the illegal drugs trade. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that this is a strong enough theory to explain why prohibition is still in place. Um, I think it's in place for lots of different reasons um, and its failure is... is uh, well, I mean, for, the, the, for want of a, a blueprint for a workable alternative, um, I think that prohibition is still widely accepted by a lot of people. There is need. There's a need to put the case for for a legal regulated market, which I didn't really get round to in in um, in the presentation that I made. But I mean, yeah, you're pointing in the right direction that a legal regulated market from from the supply countries uh, would would um, I think would, would be would would only be of help? Quick, because we have a queue. Uh, just to say that, isn't it as well? Like most politicians, as of today, are users of cocaine themselves. <laughs> so it's sort of like an ironic factor. Thank you. All right, we have a question just behind you here. Uh, sorry to take this a bit off the subject, but I was interested in your documentary making. Hello. Uh, I was interested in your documentary making, how you made it into that that area, and any tips you'd give somebody looking to go in the same area. <laughs> um, well, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I, I was finding it very difficult to to treat subjects like this uh, in, I mean, a subject like this is hard to make in a documentary form, and that's the nature of the subject, but I think as a, a genre, for me anyway, I've, I found that documentary was, uh, it was a declining way of making a living, and I've, I've, that's been borne out by conversations with a lot of friends who, who do make documentaries. I think basically it's, it's a, it's a part-time job, so don't D quit your don't day job. <laughs> Question right at the very Yeah, I was wondering, the drug abusers probably take several drugs together. So what is the impact of the multi-substance abuse? And also, how about the purification of the cocaine? Is there any regulation? Well, there's, there's certainly no regulation of the purification of cocaine. I mean, this is, this is one of the cases for legalization is that it would be an opportunity to standardize um, and to ensure quality control of, of the product. Um, at the moment when drugs are cut with all kinds of, well, whatever the, the dealer happens to want to put in it, um, a lot of those cocaine-related deaths, I mean, it's interesting you should mention multiple drug use, because I think most of those cocaine-related deaths 
are uh, either down to multiple drug use or combination of alcohol and alcohol and cocaine, um, or somebody injecting cocaine, expecting it to be of one strength, only to find it is in fact stronger than they're accustomed to. Those explain most of those deaths. I think once those were taken into account, I mean, I don't want to mitigate or you know uh, belittle the harm done by cocaine for some people, but in fact the number of deaths, most of them are related to to the multiple drug use or the the uh, the, the other rubbish that is put in with with your cocaine when you inject it. Hi, yeah, um, I've read your book, um, and one of, the, one of the areas now that's really um, growing in the cocaine trade is the smuggling route through West Africa. I know you did um, mention it very briefly in your book, but I, th I think that the, um, the severity of, of this new smuggling route and the like, negative repercussions that could come out of it, so really the trade of cocaine to Europe through, say, Guinea-Bissau and other countries, mm. um, if you'd want to expand on that at all and how, and how you see that really affecting um, cocaine trade more broadly mm. and the issues you've been talking about. Mm. Yeah, I mean, West Africa has become a, like a staging post uh, for the European market. Uh, it's brought over, you know, smuggled through Colombia, perhaps Venezuela, into West African countries, Guinea-Bissau, Senegal, all, all of those African countries. Uh, the seizures have gone up hugely, and the, the infrastructure isn't really there to, to, um, to, to seize cocaine shipments, uh, although the authorities are trying to get on top of that at the moment. Um, what can I say about that? I mean, I don't know. I remember reading something in, in The Observer where uh, a while ago where I mean, it seems to me if Guinea-Bissau, the, 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 the journalist was talking about, you know, how it was a narco state and these awful, the awful impact of drugs trafficking on Guinea-Bissau, you know, and you have all these huge villas where people are swimming in their swimming pools. I thought, well, you know, they weren't, those villas weren't there before. Um, I, mean, I mean, I don't want to be trivial or anything, but uh, if, if people do object to, to drug running through countries like Guinea-Bissau, I suggest that they find alternatives for people in Guinea-Bissau. Because if the upshot has been the building of several big villas um, and a James Bond lifestyle for some Colombian traffickers and their Guinea-Bissauan colleagues, I mean, to my mind, the, the problem that goes with the smuggling is the violence uh, when there's competition between cartels and you see that violence in Mexico and Colombia, you don't see that in Guinea-Bissau at the moment. Um, but I'm probably uh, digging a hole for myself in suggesting that the drug trade is good for Guinea-Bissau. I don't want to suggest that. Um, but yeah. Questioner in the middle here. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, regarding the question about uh, why is Colombia here? <laughs> why is Colombia a place where uh, so much cocaine is grown, mm. and with so many, you know, you say prostitutes and things like that. Don't you think the question should be, why is Europe and America not investing more money in education, rather than, um, I don't know, where, um, drug prevention, you know, mm. rather than investing money in uh, armament and military power, mm. Why is it not the governments of Europe and America not investing more money in educating mm. people and creating more schools, uh, giving people more opportunities and sending people to university? Mm. 
yeah, I mean, I suppose perhaps in, I, I hinted at this, that when the legalized, the legalization, by advocating legalization, perhaps I'm skipping over lots of things that could be done to improve the situation. Obviously, if uh, there were genuine alternative development for, for farmers in Colombia, they'd be less inclined to grow coca. But I think when you look at the amount of money, I mean, it was, it was the amount of money, it's such a profitable business, uh, and the legal crops have, have, are so unprofitable in large parts of Colombia. Um, but even if you were to get around that, there's, uh, the, you know, demand suggests that someone will supply it. The country that, I mean, Colombia is, in, is the, one of the countries where it's easier to supply it because it's a country suited to illegal activities because the law and, and the, the, the rule of law is still weak uh, and the state and the foundation of the state is still being decided. Um, maybe people would say that I'm slightly exaggerating there, but I think when you look at why Colombia is so well suited to drugs production, but I mean, even if it were to move out of Colombia, um, there are plenty of other countries where it, it physically can grow. Gentlemen, a couple of rows in front. Um, one aspect that I find very important, and maybe we didn't have the time to cover, um, is the corrupting effects of prohibition, prohibition of whatever it is, in this case, of drugs. I, I have a daughter, she is 18, she, I know that she uses drugs, not heavy drugs, but I'm much more worried that for her to use drugs she has to be in contact with an underworld full of corruption compared to if it were legalized and her relationship with drugs would not take place mm. in, in a worrying context. Mm -hmm. Is there any study about the corrupt effects of drugs as opposed to the legalization of drugs? Well, I mean, there are plenty of studies, of, I suppose, of a more orthodox interpretation of what corruption means. In other words, corruption by drugs traffickers of political institutions, the police and so on. I mean, that's another factor that makes prohibition very hard to make a reality. But I think what you're pointing at, in other words, Prohibition rests on the idea that we can get rid of drug use. It doesn't really tackle the question of what you do with those people who still take drugs. Those people who do still take drugs, who could be buying and taking drugs in an orthodox context, um, a comfortable, safe environment with their friends, are in any that they're forced to buy drugs from drug dealers. Uh, which in some cases, those drug dealers and the settings in which you find them are quite benign. In other cases, they're, they're very dangerous, um, partly because those, the drug dealers are, are at risk of being arrested, partly because they're in competition with other drug dealers, uh, partly because those drug dealers have no interest in the health or welfare of, um, of the people they sell drugs to, partly because those drug dealers have a vested interest in selling drugs to people with problem, problem, problematic drug use. Uh, so they focus in, they, they congregate in neighbors, neighborhoods where the most marginalized, most neglected, most desperate, most hopeless people live. Uh, so if you want to buy your drugs, you find yourself going to that neighborhood. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's answered your question. We've got time for a couple more questions. There's a gentleman at the front here and then 
back back to the group. Um, so, firstly, I was wondering, are you advocating the legalisation of purely cocaine or all drugs? Um, but secondly, mainly, you talk about sort of we tackle the, de the supply, not the demand. Um, and what we're in at the minute, I see, is a very grey area. We don't legalise it, but we don't really discourage demand. And you've sort of got two lots of users. You've got the people who take drugs for reasons where they sort of feel compelled to, for socio-economic reasons. Mm. I mean, you talk about um, The Wire and mm. what comes from a book by David Simon in the corner is that drugs are a symptom and not a cause of the problems that, that are facing those communities. But also the recreational drug users, they tend to get off um, scot-free. I mean, I, I know people who will take cocaine but won't buy battery farm decks. Yeah. And when you think about the... Um, harm that's caused by taking drugs. There's no sort of education programs, programs really advising people of the kind of harm there is in that. So. This, is, this is the line that the Colombian government has been uh, focusing on. The Colombian government has a program called Shared Responsibility, which is designed to get Western cocaine consumers to make them more aware of the harm done by the drugs trade. Uh, I think there are a couple of problems with it, though. Um, first, I mean, I think a, a drugs consumer can say, well, this isn't the consequence of my, my taking the drug. This is the consequence of your prohibiting the drug, um, which might sound academic, but depending on, on your, your, your take on the, the wider question of prohibition and legalization, it, it's key. Uh, secondly, the Colombian government also talks about the environmental destruction done by the, the cocaine business. Um, to appeal to you know, the environmental, ethical consciences of Western cocaine consumers. Um, and I think that itself is a bit of an indictment of the fact that a lot of Western consumers, you know, if you, you can tell them about the huge harm done by Colombian cartels, the murder rate, the corruption, uh, all the terrible things done by the illegal drugs business, uh, the Colombian government have decided, probably rightly, that Western consumers will continue to take drugs regardless of all that harm, but if you tell them that um, they're, you know, native orchids and lilies and all kinds of little bugs are being destroyed because of it, perhaps they'll be more sympathetic. Um, there may well be a move for, I mean, as topsy-turvy as it sounds, there probably will be a campaign for free trade cocaine, at which point someone has to intervene and say, well, you have to make it first legal before you can freely trade in it. Um, yeah. Okay, I've, I've got three more and I'll have to stop there. So the gentleman here, the gentleman there, and then the... I do you not think there'll be uh, violent repercussions from yes, <laughs> violent repercussions from legalization when these criminal networks I mean presumably they're not going to suddenly decide to go legal presumably they'll only move into more violent um, forms of gaining money be it prostitution or uh, human trafficking or kidnapping yeah, I mean, I, I heard this from, from people, and that suggests to me that, you know, there is a given body of criminals out there, and if they can't make their money from drugs, they'll make their money from something else. Now, to me, that, that doesn't follow. Um, when you look at the prohibition of alcohol in the States, when, I mean, God, that was a much more, much bigger market for alcohol, and it was all supplied by criminals and gangsters and so on. When they repealed prohibition, 1933, uh, essentially those people were without a job. And I imagine that if you legalize drugs, those people who work in the drug economy today um, will be out of a job. I mean, you can try and move into, I don't know, selling illegally imported cigarettes or 
well, but I mean, there's a limited demand for that. Uh, I think the idea that there is a given supply of crime rather reverses the, 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 the situation. Um, I think in reality, the, you know, the crime, a lot, in the case of drugs, this is crimes that we create by, by banning the activity and driving it into criminal hands. Um, I think it distracts from the real advantages of legalizing and regulating it by hyping up what might happen to, um, to those people who currently work in, in that economy. Can I take uh, both questions together? So if you give your, your question and then if you shout loud because you haven't got a microphone, then Tom will finish off with... Uh... Um, it could just be me, but it seemed that um, in 2007 and eight. Uh, MDMA was really prevalent, um, but in 2009, there seemed to be a sort of, I mean, you know, hypothetically, there seemed to be a massive uh, decline in quality, and um, people just, <laughs> people just uh, stopped getting it. And apparently, um, that's because uh, the government pro uh, expanded prohibition and made some of the precursor chemicals illegal. Oh, mm. <laughs> uh, my mistake. Um, well, is that, oh yeah. uh, do you think that's either a sort of success of prohibition or do you think that's a sort of temporary lull? Last question, then Tom will finish off. Shout out. Uh, okay, those two questions. Um, on the subject of MDMA, uh, no, because it is an interesting subject because it was the declining quality of MDMA which I think provoked the, the demand in this country for cocaine. Uh, you'll find a lot of people in the early 2000s were taking ecstasy. As prices went up, the quality went down, a lot of people moved on to cocaine. And this is a pattern that you find a lot in the history of prohibition. Uh, a lot of the people who moved into cocaine production when the Americans in the early 80s cracked down on marijuana growing, you found a lot of people um, who wanted to smoke something and couldn't get it. Uh, a lot of people who were accustomed to growing marijuana and suddenly had their crops sprayed, they moved into cocaine. So there, it, there's a lot of uh, unintended consequences, I think, that crop up when you look at how policies were implemented and, and the consequences of those policies. Uh, on the subject of Colombia, I mean, a lot of Colombians would argue that the security situation has improved, but I mean, the security situation in Colombia and the drugs trade are separate subjects. Um, the, cor the current government of U uh, President Uribe essentially says that narco traffic only exists in Colombia because of the FARC. And therefore, in order to tackle narco traffic, we simply have to defeat the FARC. Now, the FARC long predate the cocaine trade in Colombia in any significant size, uh, and most of the cocaine trade isn't controlled by the FARC. In fact, the FARC are very prevalent in the lower stages of production, 
But once you get up to higher stages of actually making cocaine, exporting cocaine, you find that uh, the, the, the FARC, they might well be struggling to get into that, but most of it's in the hands of um, you know, Colombian criminals, mafia, paramilitaries. Um, so to, 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 to suggest that the, the FARC and narco-traffic are one and the same, and by, defend, by defeating one, you defeat the other, um, I, I think that's, uh, that's dubious. Uh, but having said that, you know, I'm sure I know Colum uh, Alvaro Uribe is very popular in Colombia because kidnappings have gone down and uh, people can travel around the country and everyone's grateful for, for that freedom after a long time when they didn't have it. But I think that the drugs economy is, is quite separate to, to those achievements. Thank you. I, I know that there were other questions, but we are out of time. I know that Tom will be around to sign your book, and if anybody wants to buttonhole him afterwards, please feel free. Um, it just remains to, uh, on behalf of all of you, to thank him for a wide-ranging, interesting and, and important talk, and to show our gratitude for, for that tonight. Thank you.